All right, welcome guys. This is Dr. Apurva and this is my first ever podcast on Yosemite Step 2 CK. And today we'll be beginning with neurosurgery portion and the design of this podcast is the questions which I'll ask you will be in random order. So I'll ask you the questions, you might take a pause and think for the answer and even if you don't uh, get the answer, you can wait for my answer. So let's get started. Okay, a 65-year-old man comes to you with the complaint of tingling, numbness and burning pain in both of his hands. His symptoms are worse in the left hand. He also has the history of end-stage renal disease. He is receiving hemodialysis through arteriovenous fistula on the left hand. His symptoms get worse during the hemodialysis sessions. What is your diagnosis? This is carpal tunnel syndrome and this is the most common neuropathy in patients receiving hemodialysis and who are having end-stage renal disease. Of course, the patient will have pain and paresthesia in the lateral part of the hand and this symptoms typically worsens during the dialysis, especially in the hand which has the arteriovenous fistula. Now, what is the pathophysiology of this carpal tunnel syndrome in patient receiving dialysis? The most common cause is likely dialysis-related amyloidosis in which there is inflammation and this inflammation will stimulate the formation of beta-2 microglobulin. And this beta-2 microglobulin are inadequately cleared and they'll be deposited in the carpal tunnel. There are some other mechanisms as well like there is increased venous pressure during hemodialysis or there is blood tracking through the facial planes from the fistula into the carpal tunnel during the vascular axis or maybe there is deposition of calcium phosphate in the tunnel. All of these will ultimately worsen the extrinsic compression of the median nerve. In addition, there may be vascular steel through the fistula and that might lead to ischemic neuropathy. Now, what are some provocative tests for carpal tunnel syndrome? Yes, there are two, the Fallon test and the Tinel sign. What is Fallon test? Whenever you flex the wrist, it will worsen the nerve compression under the carpal tunnel and it will produce more tingling. That's Fallon test. What about Tinel sign? What is Tinel sign? Is that whenever you tap the median nerve, it will also produce a tingling sensation. And ultimately, how will you diagnose carpal tunnel syndrome? The diagnosis is usually made clinically, but this can be confirmed by electrodiagnostic studies like nerve conduction studies. Now, how will you differentiate uremic polyneuropathy from carpal tunnel syndrome in patient receiving dialysis? The uremic neuropathy is common in patients with end-stage renal disease, but this can cause progressive pain and paresthesia in feet, not in the hands. Okay, and since this is due to uremia, the polyneuropathy will typically resolve when the dialysis is initiated. In contrast, the pain and symptoms of the carpal tunnel syndrome will get worsen and get more severe in the arm with vascular excess during the dialysis. Alright, on to the next one. Let's say you have a 78-year-old woman coming to you with the complaining of worsening clumsiness and weakness of her hands. She is having difficulty performing daily activities like buttoning shirts or tightly holding the garden tools. She also reports stiffness in her legs and neck. On examination, you see bony outgrowths of distal and proximal interphalangeal joints. There is also wasting of intrinsic muscles of hand and on neck flexion, 
there is an electric shock like sensation down the back of the patient ankle reflexes are 3 plus bilaterally what's your diagnosis this is spinal cord compression i know you were thinking about amyotrophic lateral sclerosis the moment you think of upper motor and lower motor neuron science together you think of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis but the differentiating point here was electric shock like sensation down the patient's back and the diagnosis is cervical myelopathy okay now cervical myelopathy is due to compression of both spinal cord as well as spinal root okay now if you compress the spinal cord you will get upper motor neuron cell below the lesion and if you compress the spinal nerve root you will get radicular symptoms that means lower motor neuron signs at the level of lesion now the electric shock like pain with the neck flexion is also called the lermit sign which may also occur in cervical myelopathy the reason they have mentioned that there is bony outgrowth at the distal and the proximal interpharyngeal joint was to emphasize that there is some kind of osteoarthritis and degenerative disease going on and there is also degenerative disease going on in the vertebras which has resulted into osteophyte formation and ligament hypertrophy which is ultimately leading to cervical myelopathy and cervical radiculopathy so next time whenever you see upper motor and lower motor neuron signs along with neck pain and lermit sign please think of cervical spinal cord compression and this is also called cervical radiculomyelopathy meaning radiculo means it is compressing nerve roots myelopathy means it is compressing spinal cord giving you both upper motor that means hyperreflexia spastic gait stiffness and lower motor that means atrophy and hyperreflexia signs together now you might be confused with the lermit sign wait what lermit sign was seen in multiple sclerosis now this lermit sign is a non specific sign that whenever you flex the neck it can activate the ascending spinothalamic pain pathway and you get that electric shock like sensation so it's kind of non specific entity that can be seen in multiple sclerosis transverse myelitis as well as cervical spondylitis which can lead to cervical radiculomyelopathy so the only way um, by which you can differentiate amyotrophic lateral sclerosis from the cervical spondylomyelopathy is by asking the patient about neck pain and asking about lermit sign they are not present in amyotrophic lateral sclerosis all right on to the next one let's say you have a 36 year old man complaining of sharp neck pain that radiates towards the left hand after lifting the heavy weights he also has upper back pain he also complains of some tingling sensation in the left hand but otherwise there is no weakness or bladder or bowel dysfunction on physical examination you see cervical paraspinal muscle spasm and there is decreased pin prick sensation in the left fourth and fifth digits what's your diagnosis now this is c8 cervical radiculopathy now it becomes very important to remember different levels of radiculopathy but we'll come to that but before that this is c8 cervical radiculopathy what's your next step in management the answer is you avoid provocative activity and give them nsaids very straightforward so if a patient comes to with acute sharp neck pain and upper back pain which radiates towards the left hand and that aggravates with the neck movement 
with sensory deficits in fourth and fifth digits please think of c8 cervical radiculopathy now the art of identifying different kinds of cervical radiculopathy let's say c5 c6 c7 and so on lies in identifying the area of sensory loss let's say what area of sensory loss you will find on examination if the patient is having c5 cervical radiculopathy that's the lateral upper arm what about c6 it is the thumb and the index finger that's a famous mnemonic that you can make the figure 6 with the help of your thumb and the index finger what about c7 it is middle finger what about c8 it is the ring and the little finger what about t1 it is medial forearm so if you remember these it will help you further in every musculoskeletal questions so that patient had cervical radiculopathy that means c8 cervical radiculopathy symptoms after lifting heavy weights so what was the cause of his cervical radiculopathy that was compression of nerve root due to disc herniation okay so that can present with acute symptom onset as seen in that patient now the other cause of cervical radiculopathy can also give rise to the symptoms but they are more chronic in nature like for example progressive spinal spondylosis okay so classically there are two causes of cervical radiculopathy one is by acute compression of nerve root by disc herniation and second one is by chronic subacute degenerative changes as seen in spinal spondylosis now the question is how will you diagnose this cervical radiculopathy now the question comes that how will you diagnose cervical radiculopathy now the diagnosis is usually made clinically and neuroimaging is not required especially if the patient is having mild deficits like that patient only had decreased pin prick sensation in the fourth and the fifth finger and rest of the neurologic examination was normal and at the top he had a very low risk of any malignancy or infection so if the patient has any signs of infection like uh, fever or weight loss or maybe progressive neurologic deficits then you might consider the neuroimaging option but for this patient since there is low risk of malignancy there is no sign of infection you can just do a clinical diagnosis you don't require neuroimaging for this so when will you recommend mri for a patient having cervical spondylosis you will do mri only when the symptoms are very severe or progressive or there are bilateral neurologic deficits or if somebody is having very high risk of malignancy or they have signs and symptoms of epidural abscess like fever or if the patient is iv drug user then you might consider mri otherwise the clinical diagnosis should suffice when will you order x-ray for the cervical spine whenever you are suspecting any compression fracture out of trauma or whenever you are suspecting vertebral metastasis you might order x-ray but it has very limited use in cervical radiculopathy so once again to summarize how will you manage mild cervical spondylosis the treatment should focus on giving them nsaids and asking them to avoid provocative maneuvers also you have to ask the patient to continue moderate physical activities and strict bed rest should obviously be avoided 
Now, if the symptoms are not controlled on NSAIDs and by avoidance of provocative maneuver, you can add glucocorticoids for severe pain. And if the symptoms are even not resolved on oral glucocorticoids, then you can ask the patient for having epidural corticosteroid injections. And if the symptoms are not even resolved with epidural corticosteroid injections, then you can do MRI and further plan for surgical interventions. So here is the timeline of the management. First of all, give the NSAIDs, ask the patient to avoid provocative maneuvers. If the symptoms are not resolved, give them oral glucocorticoids. If not resolved, give them epidural corticosteroid injections. If not resolved, then plan for MRI and surgical interventions. Okay, on to the next question. Let's say you have a woman coming after motor vehicle accident and she has right leg trauma and the right leg examination shows hematoma over the thigh and she has difficulty in right knee extension. The patellar reflexes are markedly reduced and there is decreased sensation of both sharp and dull stimuli over the anterior thigh and the medial side of the lower leg. Which nerve is most likely injured? The answer is obviously femoral nerve. That's because the femoral nerve will help in flexion of the hip and obviously the extension of the knee. And if you are not able to do the extension of the knee and the patellar reflex is um, decreased, the answer is femoral nerve. And femoral nerve provides sensation to anterior thigh via the anterior cutaneous branches of the femoral nerve. And it will also provide the sensation to the medial leg via which nerve? Via saphenous branch. Now what are some causes of femoral nerve damage? You can have pelvic fracture, hip dislocation, especially anterior hip dislocation. Then you can have thigh hematoma. Or if somebody is maintained for a prolonged time on dorsal lithotomy position, like during childbirth or hip or pelvic surgery, or if somebody is undergoing vascular procedures involving femoral artery or vein. Now can you remind me of a nerve which can be injured in pelvic or hernia surgery which can lead to chronic suprapubic pain and that supplies the sensory innervation in the upper medial thigh and the genital region? What is that nerve? That is ilioinguinal nerve. It actually accompanies the spermatic cord and travels through the superficial inguinal ring. Okay, moving on. Let's say you have a man who was operated for elective surgical repair of descending thoracic aortic aneurysm. Now he complains of weakness in both lower limbs and urinary retention. On examination, you see there is flaccid paralysis and loss of pain and temperature sensation in lower limbs. Vibratory sensation in contrast are intact. Upper extremity examination reveals no abnormality. What do you think is the cause of neurologic dysfunction? Now, this is spinal cord infarction. Now, during aortic aneurysm repair, you have to cross clamp the aorta and that will temporarily cause spinal cord hypoperfusion. And whenever you put the new vascular graft, that will disrupt the segmental arteries. Now, anterior spinal artery um, receives main flow of the blood from the segmental artery. So, if you disrupt that, it can cause the anterior two-third of the spinal cord ischemia. Now, how can you identify the anterior cord syndrome? There will be bilateral paralysis due to damage of lateral corticospinal tracts and anterior horn. 
okay there'll be loss of pain and temperature below the level of lesion because of damage to anterior spinothalamic tract and there'll be urinary retention from the damage of descending autonomic tracts all right moving on to the next let's say you have a 62 year old woman who complains of dizziness headaches and nausea she also has history of hypertension and a history of transient right-sided vision loss for which she was prescribed aspirin now the ct scan of the head shows the hyperdensity in the posterior fossa and hour after the admission she appears lethargic but follows simple commands now she also had the episode of vomiting what's your best step in management you have to do surgical decompression this is cerebral hemorrhage now from the question stem how can you identify that she had the risk factor for cerebellar hemorrhage number 1 was hypertension she was hypertensive the second one she was on antithrombotic therapy like aspirin and the third one if somebody is having cerebral amyloidangiopathy like if somebody is having alzheimer's disease you can have predisposition to cerebellar hemorrhage now what are the clinical features how will the patient come to you headache nausea and vomiting are very much common of course you will see this in any pathology which increases intracranial pressure but if it is cerebellar hemorrhage you will expect ipsilateral ataxia dysarthria vertigo and nystagmus apart from this due to hemorrhage if there is high intracranial pressure it might impinge some cranial nerve as well so you can expect some cranial neuropathies as well what is the management of cerebral hemorrhage first of all you got to stabilize the patient by airway breathing and circulation protocol if the anticoagulation is already started you got to reverse that anticoagulation blood pressure management you have to elevate the head end of the bed to decrease the intracranial pressure but there's one problem if the cerebral hemorrhage is expanding it can extend and obstruct the fourth ventricle that can lead to obstructive hydrocephalus so urgent surgical decompression is required so how will you know that this patient requires urgent surgical decompression there are mainly three indication number one if the hemorrhage is more than 3 cm second one is if you find severe neurological deterioration like for example impaired consciousness and the third one is brain stem compression or large cerebral hemorrhage which is causing obstructive hydrocephalus now just for a side note if somebody is having intracranial malignancy and there is peritumor edema how can you reduce inflammation of that peritumor edema the answer is glucocorticoids okay so how do you differentiate that this is intracranial malignancy and this is intracranial hemorrhage intracranial malignancies are usually less hyperdense and there is usually a peritumor edema with central necrosis so this is how you can differentiate hemorrhages are usually very hyperdense okay the next one let's say you have a woman who complains of difficulty holding the phone she has muscle aches in her arms and legs constipation lethargy and difficulty concentrating at work her bmi is 32 there is numbness in the thumb index finger and the middle fingers of both hands deep tendon reflexes are 1 plus on all four extremities the skin is dry duffy and dry at both elbows there is mild edema at both ankles what do you think is most likely responsible for the patient's hand symptom the answer is mucinous infiltration the patient was having what she was having hypothyroidism 
So in hypothyroidism, usually there is soft tissue enlargement due to deposition of mucopolysaccharides. So this is a great time to revise different causes of carpal tunnel syndrome. What is the pathophysiology of idiopathic or overuse carpal tunnel syndrome? It is generally due to swelling and fibrosis of the tendons and soft tissues under the carpal tunnel. Hypothyroidism, you already know there is soft tissue enlargement due to deposition of mucopolysaccharides. What about diabetes mellitus? Again, there is soft tissue enlargement due to hyperglycemia and there is also microvascular insufficiency and neovascularization. Well, what about rheumatoid arthritis? Why does it cause carpal tunnel syndrome? There is an extrinsic compression of the median nerve from the joint deformity in the rheumatoid arthritis. What about pregnancy? Pregnancy can cause carpal tunnel syndrome. How? Due to accumulation of fluid and edema under the carpal tunnel. What about end-stage renal disease? There is deposition of amyloid and calcium phosphate under the carpal tunnel. And this is also excess related meaning there could be bleeding or venous hypertension during hemodialysis and there is some kind of vascular steel which can also called ischemia to the median nerve. What about acromegaly? In acromegaly there is also tendon enlargement and synovial edema which can lead to carpal tunnel syndrome. What about gout? Gout can cause compression of the median nerve due to deposition of tophi. Moving on, let's say you have a woman in the post-operative care. She now has tachycardia and dyspnea. She underwent dilatation and curettage for gestational trophoblastic disease uh, in the OT. Now she is having hyperthermia, hypertension, tachycardia, tachypnea. She is diaphoretic and has shallow labored breathing. On examination, there is generalized rigidity everywhere and Foley's catheter is showing brown appearing urine. What's your diagnosis? This is classic case of malignant hyperthermia. Usually happens after exposure to succinylcholine or volatile anesthetics like halothane. Now, there is sustained muscle contraction in malignant hyperthermia. Due to that muscle contraction, the patient will have hypercarbia. And this hypercarbia is very much resistant even to hyperventilation. So you have to address the main pathology, that's the muscle contraction. So what will be your missed next step in management? Of course, apart from respiratory or cessation of causative anesthetic, what you'll do? What's your next step in management? It's dentrolin. Okay, it's a skeletal muscle relaxant. Now, how will you differentiate this malignant hyperthermia from neuroleptic malignant syndrome? You already know malignant hyperthermia is caused by exposure to volatile anesthetics or succinylcholine or maybe excessive heat. In contrast, neuroleptic malignant syndrome is often associated with uh, exposure to neuroleptic agents like haloperidol or flufenazine. That's not exacerbated by surgery or surgical anesthesia. And neuroleptic malignant syndrome will progress over days. In contrast, malignant hyperthermia can progress in minutes. That's the main difference. Okay, to summarize, what are the clinical features of malignant hyperthermia? The patient will have hypercarbia due to increased cellular metabolism in the muscle, sinus tachycardia due to autonomic dysregulation, since there is sustained muscle contraction that will release myoglobin from the skeletal muscle that's called rhabdomyolysis and that can give you acute kidney injury. 
Now what's the main pathophysiology of malignant hyperthermia? Usually there is genetic mutation which alters the accumulation of calcium inside the sarcoplasmic reticulum. The exposure to anesthetic agent and the muscle relaxant is a trigger which can disrupt the regulation of calcium transport across the rhinodin receptors. So ultimately it will lead to more muscle contraction and malignant hyperthermia. Next one, let's say you have a 65 year old man involved in the motor vehicle accident. He briefly lost consciousness during the impaction of the airbag. Now complaints of numbness, tingling and marked weakness in both upper extremities but he is able to move his lower extremities normally. He has history of cervical spondylosis. X-ray shows cervical spine with no abnormalities with mild degenerative changes. What's your diagnosis? This is central cord syndrome. This hyperextension injury is very much common especially in elderly people who already have cervical spine degenerative changes like cervical spondylosis. Now the central cord syndrome will cause classically the loss of pain and temperature in cape-like distribution just like syringomyelia due to the involvement of anterior commissure. Now the patient might also have disproportionate upper extremity involvement due to the involvement of the lateral corticospinal tract especially the medial part of the lateral corticospinal tract which involves the arm. So patient might have weakness in the upper extremity more than as compared to the lower extremities. So this is the central cord syndrome in hyperextension injury. So can you tell me what are the different causes of central cord syndrome? You already know one now that's cervical spine hyperextension injury and the second one is also famous that's syringomyelia. So just to remind you what causes anterior cord syndrome, it is the problem with the anterior spinal artery like anterior spinal artery trauma or dissection. You already know about central cord syndrome, it is the spinal cord trauma due to hyperextension injury. And what about posterior cord syndrome? It can happen in tabes dorsalis due to tertiary syphilis. It can happen in subacute combined degeneration of spinal cord due to vitamin B12 deficiency. Or it can also happen in Friedreich ataxia. Alright, how will you differentiate glioblastoma multiforme and brain abscess on CT MRI? Let's come to glioblastoma multiforme first. You already know it is also called grade 4 astrocytoma, also called as glioblastoma multiforme. That was the most common primary brain tumor. Now, it has classical butterfly appearance due to it can cross the brain midline and on CT MRI you will see butterfly appearance with central necrosis that is classic for glioblastoma and surrounding that you will see serpentinous contrast enhancement that is very typical of high grade glioblastoma multiforme. In contrast whenever you look at brain abscess first of all you got to look at the systemic symptoms like the patient will have fever or there is acute onset of symptoms and evidence of some systemic infectious process and on MRI you'll see a thick and diffuse contrast enhancement which will result in ring and that ring is a result of breakdown of blood-brain barrier. So this is how you can differentiate glioblastoma multiforme and brain abscess. Well then what's the most common side of brain metastasis? Yes, it's the grey white junction or also called the watershed areas. The brain metastases are usually multifocal, you'll find many of them and usually spherical in shape. 
okay next one should be easy for you let's say you have a woman complaining of tingling numbness and weakness of the left upper extremities the patient also experienced left shoulder and subscapular pain the symptoms worsen after cradling the phone between the head and the left shoulder she has a history of hypothyroidism she also has loss of pinprick sensation in the left thumb and index finger there is mild weakness of the elbow flexion and bicep reflex is decreased on the left side what's the cause exactly this is c6 cervical radiculopathy you notice the involvement of thumb and the index finger and the motor symptoms of biceps she was having problem in flexing the elbow and the bicep reflex was low so this is exactly c6 cervical radiculopathy now one thing you should always keep this in mind that you should never confuse that this is median nerve pathology like because it is involving the lateral part of the hands you should always see that there are always two kinds of lesions like this patient is having dermatomal distribution lesion in the thumb and the index finger and she is also having myotomal lesion of the elbow flexion so whenever there is mixture of lesion like say here is musculocutaneous nerve and some amount of median nerve always think of cervical radiculopathy that is more common also whenever the patient is having cervical radiculopathy there are some maneuvers which can improve or worsen the symptoms can you remind me of some maneuvers which can improve or worsen the cervical radiculopathy symptoms first is lateral flexion like this patient was having worsening of the symptoms when she was cradling the phone between her head and the shoulder so lateral flexion and rotation of the neck just which occurs in cradling a phone between head and shoulder it can narrow the ipsilateral neural foramina which can worsen the nerve root compression in contrast whenever you do shoulder abduction that can reduce the tension on the impinged nerve root so whenever the patient uh rests their hand placed on the top of the head the symptoms might relieve so that's also called shoulder abduction relief test so this both tests can be diagnostic and therapeutic for short term pain relief all right that's the perfect time to end this podcast at 30 minutes hope you liked it and thank you for listening well if you are still listening and if you have any queries about step 1 and step 2 ck preparations and how to score high on steps you can always comment below and you can also um go to my instagram handle and message me there instagram handle is much more handy to reply the messages i'll be waiting for your response thank you and have a nice day